This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Today's episode of the Chase to Must podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Panko Chicken. The new Atlanta restaurant thrives off of a unique spin on Japanese and Western cuisine and is already racking up the awards, winning Best Selling Taste in the Taste of Atlanta Awards both in 2017 and 2018. So if you're in the metro Atlanta area and are wanting to try something new and good and delicious, go to Panko Chicken today and tell them that I sent you over. You'll be glad you did, I promise. Panko Chicken, where eats meets West. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, welcome back to a Monday night edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. On the line right now, Newsday's NFL columnist Bob Glauber. Bob, good evening. How are you, sir? Good evening, Chase. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. I'm glad we were able to do this. Um, have you? Uh, I, you're you're a veteran journalist, sports journalist, and um, I'm always excited to get guys like you on this podcast because I talk to a lot of people that are around my age. And not to say that you are old, Bob, but that's okay. Uh, I am old. Right. It's okay. <laughs> um, I've been around. I like different perspectives. I like um, talking to people who actually watched uh, Bill Barcells and other coaches that I don't have any kind of context for other than the Dallas Cowboys, Quincy Carter teams and all this kind of stuff. Like there's, it's a different, uh, different perspective that I very much appreciate. Um, so I'm glad we're able to talk uh, a little NFL today. Are you, do you, does it feel like you've been covering this league for a very long time? Well, you know, I, I actually have been covering it for a very long time, but no, it doesn't feel like it because the years, um, you know, they kind of they kind of go by fast. And while you're in them, the, the NFL season can be a grind, and it's very intense. It's extremely emotional for for players and coaches and fans. But man, you just you know you go day by day, and all of a sudden the years pile up. And uh, honestly, it feels like. Uh, really, it was like five years ago that it was like 1985, my first season covering the NFL. <laughs> Who'd you cover that year? I covered the Giants that year. So my first year covering the NFL, I had, I had covered hockey before that. I covered the Islanders when they were very good. Mm-hmm. And then I, my first year um, covering the NFL was the Giants for a Gannett Westchester paper up in Westchester County, New York. And I covered the Giants with Bill Parcells and Phil Sims and Lawrence Taylor Joe Morris, Carl Banks, Harry Carson. So that was, you know, it turned into kind of a legendary team that won a couple of Super Bowls shortly thereafter. What do you remember most about Bill Parcells? What is, is there anything about like talking to somebody like him? Because he's definitely someone I think we all wanted to get to know and learn more about. And he's just cited as just like 
the godfather of football with all these different quotes and people cite him all the time. And just what did you glean from uh, your interactions with Bill Parcells over the years? Bill was very scary at first. I could see that. <laughs> he was very scared, but he was just intimidating. You know, he was a he was kind of large, a little bit larger than life then, but not quite because he hadn't won a championship. So, so this is eighty five, and it's a year after that he turned the corner. Um, eighty four, he went nine and seven, and they made the playoffs. They they lost to the forty ers in the playoffs that year. So, you know, he was just starting to get good, and so it's only two years removed from the 83 season when he was almost fired. So 84, he does better and he starts to get cocky. He says, you know, he's that Jersey guy, tough guy in your face kind of, kind of coach. So I had gone from, uh, the, the Islanders who were coached by a guy named Al Arbor, who was a hall of fame coach. He won four Stanley cups. He was tremendous gentleman as nice as could be. And he was very nice with the media. And I go from him to Bill Parcells, who is just in your face and, you know, not having it. And I, I was very nervous and anxious during press conferences because you always had to kind of be mindful of what he was going to say. And, you know, I got used to it after a while, but still you had to kind of earn your stripes with him as a writer. You know, you mentioned people talk about quotes that Bill Parcells said um, all the time. I, I, as a, as a writer, I think about quotes that Bill Parcells said all the time to this day. And, um, give me an you know, example. I just, well, okay, there was a game in 1986, the first game of the season. That was their Super Bowl season. And they they played the opener against the Dallas Cowboys. And their running back, Joe Morris, had had a contract problem. And, you know, he actually held out the two days before the game. They ended up losing the game on a last-second draw play to Herschel Walker. Herschel scores mm-hmm. for the Cowboys. Mm-hmm. And I could just see Parcells sitting up at the podium. And after the game, he says, you know, we asked what what happened. He goes, "Hey, look at fellas. You know, it's just draw play. Everybody's got one." <laughs> and, and just like I, I will say that line to a handful of writers who were there, and they'll remember it. It's like, "Hey, what if I say, hey, fellas, just a draw play, just a draw play, fellas. Everybody's got one. Tell me when he said that. Oh yeah, Dallas '86. You know, Herschel Walker. So, you know, he just he was a very strong-minded person, and you know, he went through a lot, and um, you know, when you got a when you when you're around a hall of fame person you feel it and you know there there's a reason that these that these guys are special and and when they are special and you're around them you just notice a difference and now bill belichick was on that staff at that time and and he yep. was special then but but we didn't think no there's no way he's going to become the greatest coach in nfl history nah he but he was a brilliant guy and and we mm-hmm. knew it then and the I think the public at large did not know that Bill Belichick was such a such a genius back in back in the eighties. But as writers, you know, we got to know the, the the players and the coaches quite well. It's a different different kind of scenario then because you had much more interaction. It's it's much more um, it's much more guarded now. You know, you Interesting. Just, just, yeah, it's oh, it's it's incredible. It seems like it's the exact opposite in the NBA now. Um, the MLB has always been extremely guarded. It feels like, and they're very restrictive on media stuff. And um, it seems very strange how they handle their media relations, especially with journalists and the fans and stuff like that. But um, the NBA has gone the other way, where there's just more access than ever. But um, the NFL is, is kind of different in that regard too. Yes. There is, you know, the NBA is is definitely an open book, um, you know, with the personalities. And you're right, the the media access is incredibly better. 
Um, now it's on a smaller scale than the NFL. So, so mm-hmm. when, when you look at it, it's say it's like three to one um, media in NFL coverage compared to NBA. Right. So they have to in the NFL. They feel that you know the the teams and the and the league and the and the coaches feel that they've got to guard the players a little bit, kind of insulate them because it'll get overwhelming, and, and it can be. So you you got to pick your spots. You know, I've I've gotten to know players over the years in in this time, and you know it happens. You're, you're around these people a lot, but back then, you know, I'll give you an example. We get we get about 45 minutes at lunchtime with the players. That's our access for the day. We can watch one half hour of open prac of practice, which is basically stretching and individual drills, and then we're kicked out. And that's wow. it. That's it for the day. Now, when I started in 85, and for several years thereafter, we got 45 minutes at lunch with the players. Then we went to practice and watched every single solitary minute of practice. And then after practice, we walked back into the locker room with the players and stayed there as long as we wanted. That's so wild. yeah, yeah. So so you got to know players, and I, you know, I could I could, you know, go down the just about the entire roster of Giants players back then and coaches, uh, and you know they would know me, I would know them, and you know it was it was a very kind of an kind of an intimate working relationship um, where you could just get to know them extremely well. I mean, I, it was not uncommon for me and a handful of other writers to call Phil Sims at home during the season and shoot the breeze for an hour. And he was Just down about, with it. He was cool with it. Oh, he was, he was fine. He loved it. He loved it. Huh. Interesting. Loved so it. when he when he popped up in the broadcast booth, you're like, oh, yeah, of course he was going to do that. And it, Phil was always going to do that. Well, yes and no. I mean, okay. it, it, it kind of was natural to him, and yeah. you know, this was, you know, look, being a New York quarterback, he had a he had a presence, he had a kind of charisma to him, and it was it was a natural transition for him. So, and he's been very very good, and I think he's you know very insightful, and he'll tell it like it is. And, um, you know, uh, I, it's great to watch these people grow as people, as professionals, and um, you know, having been around a long time you get to see them. You know, I got to see Bill Belichick go from nobody and nobody knows him to this incredible mythical coach. And it's a, it's phenomenal to watch that growth and, you know, watch the struggles and they know, so if, you know, if if Belichick will see me in a crowd, he'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll chat and talk about old times or talk about what's going on now. And it's just a different dynamic, you know, writers, who are younger and covering the Patriots now will look at that and say, Oh my God, what, what, what was that about? I'm like, yeah, I've known the guy know, for 30 years. The other you know? way. <laughs> no, we're no, never going back the other way. Mm-mm. No. Um, does Coughlin, cause Coughlin seems like he has a lot of those same kind of Bill Parcellsian traits and, um, little things like him getting mad about players not coming to voluntary workouts and the team having to, the NFL having to tell him, um, uh, Tom, that's, uh, d- you're, you're missing yeah. uh, a very important keyword there, uh, voluntary. Um, yes. but I also kind of love that. He's the curmudgeon, yeah. like workaholic, <laughs> the guy who's just, I, you want to go to war with, and I think Parcells was the same way. It's kind of interesting. They both ended up having success on those Giants teams and um, the same kind of identity uh, that just thrived there for years. Yes. Now, Tom Coughlin worked for Bill Parcells. I, I first got to know him 
when he worked for Parcells as a receivers coach. Now, back then, he, he almost looked the same. He's been he's looked that same way he's for been about 65 thirty five for forty five years. He's, exactly, exactly. And um, back then, he was very taskmaster of a coach and uh, very intense. Now, with the writers, he was very nice. He was nice with us, and we got to know him. And he was very helpful and insightful. And um, he wasn't as charismatic as as Parcells by any means, um, but he was engaging, and you could kind of see that this guy really had. He was very intense and, and very focused. And his receivers, I remember, um, he would want them to watch extra film at lunch. And, and a lot of times, they would kind of hide in one corner of the locker room. And he'd poke, poke his head out and, you know, ask where his guys were. And we could see him. They were, they were just hiding because they just, you know, they just wanted a break. You know, they, they, weren't, yeah. they weren't trying to grind like that. So um, he, he kind of knew it and he realized it. And, um, you know, it helped him later in his career. There was, you know, when... when Coughlin, in 2006, he was almost fired by the Giants. He finished 8-8, eight and eight, and the players hated him. Michael Strahan hated him. So this is his third year with the team. He had started in 4 Eli Manning gets in there. And so 4 5 6 Tiki Barber is ripping Coughlin. And after that season, he sat down with a bunch of writers, um, different writers and myself among them, and he wanted to know what we thought. He was like, listen, I'm an open book here. I want to know what you think I did well, what you think I needed to work on. Just lay it all out there. Interesting. Okay. Fascinating. It was the most incredible self-evaluation period that I've ever seen a coach do. Because he he knew he had to change at some level. Because it just couldn't keep going like that. So... uh, I remember sitting there and he had a yellow notepad and he was taking notes. And I go, you know, one of the things, Tom, when we, you know, you've known me a long time. Uh, we started when you were with the Giants, you would say, hello, Bob, how are you? How is your family? Why don't you do that now? I mean, there's nothing wrong with being a human being and letting people see that side of you. And he goes, okay, you know, I hear you. And, and, he, and he did do that. He let the players see his humanity. And he became a little bit more of a father figure, and you could see it. You know, Strahan eventually got very close to him, and that was the turning point. And they won a championship that it was Strahan's final year in '07. It was the first yep. of two championships for Coughlin, and and one of the reasons that he was able to keep that team together was because he met them halfway. He didn't have these stupid rules anymore. He let let them slide a little bit, and. You know what he did? He patted him on the back. He said, hey, nice job. And, you know, when you're a, a Lombardi-type coach, you know, you're just seeking perfection, you, you, you don't do that all the time. But, but he learned to do that, and, and he became a better coach as a result. Yeah. Um, Strahan is so interesting because I went down to the Strahan rabbit hole stuff because I, I heard someone, um, and you're more into this than I was, that, um, like, he, had, he went through some awful media stuff in the mid 2000s like some personal baggage getting aired out like the tiki stuff we know about um i just i guess because i was probably uh i think i was maybe 13 14 it just wasn't on my radar but i was just going through different news clippings about both of them that um unbelievable i i just feel like because people know him on the today show or whatever he's on now um he's completely flipped from what was out there at that time period because if it came out in today's culture i just i don't know how that would have gone for him well that's a fair uh evaluation and a look at that now um, 
he was always engaging. He was always, he always had that larger than life personality. And there were a couple of times where he would be combative with the press, but it was only a handful of times. And when you think of all the um, interactions that he's had with the press, and it was maybe a handful of times that you know he would he would kind of create news by what he said or what he did in a press conference. Uh, you got to say, ah, you know, okay, I understand. You know, it's heat of the moment kind of stuff. Um, he, you know, he, he was feisty, but he was a go-to guy in the locker room. You know, when you wanted to get the, the pulse of the team, you went to Michael Strahan. No questions asked, and um, he he would tell you in no uncertain terms what the deal was. And he was very engaging. I mean, he's a terrific player. It's hard for players to be great and to be great media people, right? It just is. It's a hard sport and so physically demanding, so emotional. But he was a captain, and he kind of wore it proudly, and he he just was able to kind of handle it. And it was in New York, so it was big. Everything was big, but he but he handled. You know, he had a nasty divorce that was you know that got on the tabloids, and yep. and that wasn't very helpful for him. Um, but you know he got through it, and he made a transition to the media that was incredible, one of the most amazing I've ever seen, and really that's ever been seen, um, because he got to the top in in two professions, and yes. he did it did it very quickly. I I agree. So it's one of, I I want a thirty for thirty on it because just the the up and down and all of that kind of stuff is extremely fast. He'd be great for a thirty. Oh, absolutely. If he's honest. Perfect subject. Yep. I just want him honest. If he's honest about everything and just what he was thinking at that time and where he is now and just all, sure. I, I just, I'd be all in. I think oh, he's he would be. Most, and, I, yeah. yeah, he would be. He'd, he'd be great. Well, this is a very natural transition to another guy um, Giants fans are hoping and Dave Gettleman uh, is for sure hoping uh, can handle New York and being a leader in New York. It's uh, Daniel Jones, who, uh, Wow. I mean, it's still just, I can't get over it. I, I still, I never thought they would take, take Dwayne Haskins. I didn't ever believe, like, I remember that story that came out a few weeks before the draft of them spending more time with Dwayne Haskins than any other quarterback on this fall and like studying him more, watching him more. And then they were eating with him and all this stuff. I'm like, they're not going to do it. There's no way they're taking Haskins. And I didn't think they would take Jones because I thought Gettleman was stubborn enough to just keep this going with Eli and just maybe Cal Laletta is the guy. I, I don't know. But, um, I just I can't believe it. What what do you remember uh like as that pick was announced and everything around it? Did you expect it or were you even blindsided by it? No, I wasn't completely blindsided by it because the the talk before the draft was that they were very interested in him. And you know, Daniel Jeremiah, who I think does a tremendous job on NFL Network, yeah, he's the draft great. guru, he's tremendous. He, his information is great. And and he had Daniel Jones mocked to the Giants at number six about three or four days before the draft. And we were like, whoa, really? And his thinking was, look, you know, if you believe in a quarterback, and I think the Giants believe in him, you don't mess around. You know, you just you just don't want to get that wrong. Yes, they'd need a pass rusher, and Josh Allen would have been perfect. You know, if, uh, the perfect combination would have been Josh Allen at 6 and Daniel Jones at 17. And that would have been perfectly palatable to Giants fans. The fact that he went 6... That that's what really you know shook the the foundations there, and you know we're in Nashville at the time of the draft, and it was like the shock was just incredible. You know, it was like visceral. 
And it was kind of like Phil Simms way back in 79. I was not there for that, but, you know, there, there are YouTube clips on that where, you know, Pete Rosell is announcing his name and the fans start to boo. It's just in a small ballroom um, at the Waldorf Astoria in New York. The draft was not anything like it is now. But, you know, it was just the fact that he got drafted that high and that they needed a pass rusher and Allen was on the board. And that's, you know, that really made it very awkward. And, you know, I kind of felt for Jones. He guys walking up there. Getting this, he wasn't expecting hat. it, for sure. He was not. I don't think he was expecting that. I don't think anyone could have expected that. You know, as, as the player involved, he was like, oh, this is a life, lifetime dream come true. Oh, they're booing. What the hell's going on? So he's used to it now. Um, we met with him uh, last weekend at the Giants rookie camp, and, you know, he, he's very composed and, handle himself well. I spoke to him the day before the draft, and he was very excited about the possibility of going to the Giants. Um, you know, it was clearly an issue um, and, a, and a subject that that he knew, you know, was was near and dear to his heart, and he, and he, and he legitimately wanted to come to the Giants. So, you know, the bottom line, you can, you can second-guess Gettleman, you can say, you're full of it. You know, there weren't two teams that wanted to go get Daniel Jones. That's the, that's not why you had to do it at six. You know, you, you chickened out. Okay, fine, whatever. But if Daniel Jones turns out to be a great quarterback, you know, none of this matters. Yeah. None of it matters. None of it matters. And, and here's another thing that I wrote about this for Sunday and Newsday, you know, New York loves an underdog, right? They, mm-hmm. they love the unlikely story and the guy who overachieves. Well, Daniel right. Jones is the ultimate overachiever. Yeah, you know, not not recruited out of high school. He yeah, had an he injury. Wasn't a star prospect. I think right. he, was, he was not even rated. Yeah, right. So he had a he had a basketball injury, and and a, you know he couldn't couldn't work out, and and it, and it held him back. So he's basically a, a walk on at Duke after turning down Princeton for a scholarship, mm-hmm. and he you know he wills his way onto the team. David Cutcliffe, the head coach, loves him. He's a smart guy, very accurate. He was accurate, and he, his completion percentage was not great because that's more because it drops. Yeah, and you know it. So, so he is an underdog type guy, right. and now he's going to have to just come at it from a, a, a different spot. But I, I think he's used to his reality now, and he's, he's he said, "Look, I I have to I have to make the fans like me, and the only way to do that is to win." The I, uh, yeah, for sure, and I think ultimately, I think Giants fans even look at Daniel Jones as like a, it's it, he's not enemy number one like i think they all are rooting for him and hope he succeeds and hope that it all works out but it's more of the dave gettleman stuff where they're like we're like they're more anxious and more um concerned about david gettleman's team building approach because you take saquon last year and you could have just and the maybe the thing that makes this even more juicy is the fact that darnold's on the other new york team and you could have just taken darnold number two overall last year and they didn't and then they just take another quarterback in a weaker quarterback class who maybe Gettleman likes more and he just wasn't sold on Darnold and whatever. Like, we'll, we'll have to see because Darnold had an up and down year for the Jets. But I I do think that's going to be interesting to monitor this fall, the Darnold versus Jones stuff, because if Darnold just has a really great year two, Gase is just perfect for him. Um, I I don't know. I think it's going to be fascinating. I also love that Peyton Manning continues his role as shadow GM for every team in football, which <laughs> is the reason he did not take the Monday Night Football job. Is I tell people this all the time. I'm like, read these little bits and these stories. 
Peyton Manning called Chris Johnson at like one o'clock in the morning to tell him to take Gase over McCarthy. And then he listened to Peyton. And then you have Peyton working with his guy, David Cutcliffe, who we know that they're super close and Eli being super close. Like the same, like it's, he's in everywhere. Peyton Manning doesn't have to be the Monday Night Football guy. He is king of the NFL. Like he's just, he's Roger Goodell behind the scenes. I, I don't yeah. understand how Peyton is able to do, have this much influence, but it's my favorite subplot of the Peyton Manning continues on. He got Daniel Jones paid. The Manning name got Daniel Jones into the top 10 in the NFL draft. It's great. Well, I mean, look, I think it's a little bit more than that. I, 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 I don't think that, you know, Peyton Manning just given a seal of approval to, to Daniel Jones is going to convince Dave Gettleman. I, I think it's a, a piece of the puzzle there, but, but I think what's, what's just as important there, and I agree with you that Manning has a tremendous amount of influence, and I think he absolutely influenced the Gays' decision. Um, and he is a, th- he's a great behind-the-scenes guy, and he, he, his, his influence is incredible. Um, but the Giants, I mean, they truly believe in Daniel Jones. And, you know, Peyton saying yes um, is helpful. But Cutcliffe, man, I've never seen a coach go so not over the top, but man, Cutcliffe at the draft, and he was very uh, direct. I think Daniel Jones will win a championship in this league, and he, you know, this is this is more than just kind of um, you know promoting your own player. Of course, you're going to do that, but the 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 language that he used, you know, you you don't say that about a guy. You don't put your own reputation on the line by saying that unless you truly believe in the guy, because you're going to look stupid. You know that that kind of, that quote's going to kind of bite you in the butt if if Daniel Jones turns out to be a stiff, you know, David Cutcliffe, oh, what are you talking about? What are you looking at there? He's not going to championship quarterback, you know, my, my behind. So, um, you know, I don't know. I, and, and watching him in rookie camp, he, he was, he, he was pretty good. Look, there's a long way to go and you, you got to get out there and you got to prove it and you got to prove it time and time again. So this, you know, the equation is not going to be complete for a couple of years, uh, but I think Daniel Jones is going to get his chance, you know, probably sooner rather than later. Do you? The last thing on the Giants will move on. Um, do you think Gettleman um, is talking too much? Do you think it's because I heard a good point of like how many GMs, if we heard them speak, we know who it is, or we just we see him walking around and we're like, oh, that's clearly Kevin Colbert. Like, there's not many GMs I feel like that are just easily identifiable. You just know this person. Like, is Dave Gettleman doing himself a disservice by speaking this much and uh, being this kind of defensive about everything and just being kind of like an open book? Is, is that concerning to you? Um, I, I mean, listen, this is who he is. And I don't, I mean, that's, that, that's, that's what he's about. And so I don't, I don't think he's uncomfortable with it. I think maybe the people around him could be uncomfortable. Um, but, you know, that's, that's what, when you hear a guy say, well, look, I love this quarterback, um, <laughs> you know, and you know, that's Dave Gettleman. <laughs> so, yes. And um, he is who he is. And, and I, I think he's kind of, um, uh, I don't think he's ashamed of that. And I don't think he's embarrassed by it. And I don't think he's self-conscious about it. That's just, that's just the way he has gone about it. And uh, he's kind of an open book. And, uh, you know, he knows but he knows this is going to make or break him. And he yeah. might not be around the Giants, you know, for, for much longer. He's 68 years old, so who knows how much longer he'll, he'll want to go. He, he does, you know, he got over a health scare last year. He got over, got over cancer. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, God love him for that. And, and let's, let's hope he's, you know, around to, to fight the battles here and, and to prove, you know, that he can, he can get this thing done because, you know, health is first, but it's, he knows that it's, this is, this is boomer bust and it is boomer bust. You know, if Daniel Jones is good, Dave Gettleman made the right call. If he's not, then he's going to go down in infamy. Yeah. I mean, if Daniel Jones is good, Gettleman's got a job there for 10 plus years. Like sure. if you have a, if he turns into a star, like he's, he's good. It's the same thing with uh, McHaglin in New York Jets land. If Sam Darnold has a breakout year this year, the Jets challenge the, the Pats for the AFC East, or they sneak into the playoffs as a wild card, whatever, like he's, he's set. Cause if Darnold's the guy and he's just going to be great for years, you're going to be okay. Like if you have the quarterback, you can survive um, for a very long time in this league. But um actually a lie there's one other quick thing i want to say about the giants before we move on i love the rest of their draft and that's what's so frustrating about the jones thing where it's like i like lawrence there they needed another pass rusher i like that um i love deandre baker he hasn't allowed a touchdown in like two years in college people just don't throw at him and then julian love another damn another corner like cornerback is just such an important position in this league and i i like what they did especially on defense and um, around the Daniel Jones stuff. I, I, I like the rest of the draft. So um, do, do you well, share it, my sentiment on that? Well, if you like the rest of the draft, and I, and I do, I, I kind of agree with you on, on those assessments, then it's a hell of a draft. Now, the one difference is, you know, with Lawrence, he's more of an interior guy, or, you know, run stopper, and he can get to the quarterback um, up the middle, which is a good thing. We've seen, you know, the, the two times the Patriots did lose in the Super Bowl, was against the Giants, and one big reason was the Giants got to him up the middle. And, you know, Justin Tuck in there was was up the middle, and that was very, very important. So Lawrence could be that kind of guy. Um, so I, I, think it was a, I think it was an above-average draft. Um, look, we, do, we won't know for, for quite a while whether it was, um, but I think that Dave Gettleman, like he said, filled a number of needs, and it, and it, and it fell okay. You know, the, the big question is, you know, can Jones play? And, and if he can play, um, the rest should fall into place. So how would you rank the NFC East teams going into next year? Like with free agency, the draft, everything done, how would you rate um, those four uh, going into this fall? I would probably say I'll give Philly the edge. i go Philly, Philly, Dallas, eh, Giants, maybe Redskins, Giants, Giants, Redskins, you know, th- th- three, four, flip them. You, I could see the Giants finishing third in that one. And if they get a couple of breaks early, maybe sniffing a wild card, maybe. But but more than likely, it's just going to be that transition from Eli to Jones. So I, I do like Dallas and Philly as the class of the division. And I'll say Philly will have a bounce back year and, um, and, and win that division. Who starts more games this fall, Haskins or Jones? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think it's Jones. Uh, I think there's a real possibility we don't see Haskins this fall. Oh, I think we'll see Haskins. I do think we'll see Haskins. I don't know if Case Keenan can, can you know, can hold him off that long. And Colt McCoy yeah. should be back. Um, so I, I would say, yeah. That, that, the reason I'm hesitating is to me, it's a toss-up. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think we'll see them both. But you know, when you got the owner um, wanting to draft Haskins. 
Yeah, the coach will kind of see that writing on the wall, and if Case Keenan is not getting it done, I think he'll he'll go to the go to the, the kid early. Which I don't yeah, know that is going to be right? good for get, for Haskins. Get, you know, I I I don't think there's anything wrong with just kind of taking your time with with a rookie yeah. quarterback, unless he's really to the point where he's ready. Wasn't he art like we've seen this movie before? Didn't uh, wasn't uh, Robert Griffin and uh, Dan Snyder really close? Weren't they texting? And they like that was one of the things Shanahan hated was yeah. that they had this weird relationship away yeah. from the team. Yeah, and he yep. just got special treatment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, it's it's so, not it's not it's not healthy. <laughs> no, it's just not healthy. So. Wow. Um. Yeah, I probably go Eagles. I mean, I just I'm a Wentz believer, and I think he has a bounce back year. And I think it's really hard to win the Super Bowl and then go back with what they had and the house stuff. And I don't know. I I think the Eagles should be the favorites again. I'm I'm more dubious of the Cowboys, and I think the the Redskins had a really great draft as well. And if that offensive line can stay healthy, and I don't know, I love all their different running backs. Like we we joke about Saquon and the Giants running the football down people's throats, but like the Redskins, they're doubling down on RBU. Just the amount of players they took and the amount of guys they had mm-hmm. in the backfield to make things easier for uh, their their young quarterback. It uh, it's going to be interesting. But I'm I'm more dubious than the Cowboys, and this leads me to something else I want to talk about tonight. Um, Jerry Jones, who thinks the Cowboys should be better than they were a year ago, and uh, you can tell by the way I'm leading into this, I, I don't agree. And I I think they're in for a rude awakening, and it's not good news for uh, Jason Garrett. Well, if they're not better, then it's very bad news for Jason Garrett because he'll be fired. And I think Jerry Jones kind of has hinted around enough that this has got to be a, a better year for the Cowboys. And that means Jason Garrett is, you know, this is kind of his make-or-break year. So, I, you know, I think they'll be good. Um I think they'll be playoff worthy good uh, because I think Dak Prescott is going to be a better quarterback. Um, he's got a pretty good supporting cast, got a very good offensive line around him. Ezekiel Elliott is going, I think, is going to have a, a big year. Um, you know, he's kind of he's in his prime in that first contract, and uh, the defense I think will be better. You know, they they were able to keep Demarcus Lawrence. I think he's kind of a foundational type player. I, I love to watch him rush the passer, and I think they're. I think they're better on defense. So I uh, better than last year. I you know I think they I think they can be. I don't I don't think that's that's too unrealistic. Um, I I like I've undersold the Cowboys before, and you know they've they've had good years and they've had bad years. But I but I but I do kind of like this team. I, I think it'll be competitive. I think it'll be you know wild cardish type competitive. So um, maybe maybe Garrett survives another year. Who knows? Would you pay Dak? Well, you know, pay him like twenty three million. Man, that's that's a tough one. I mean, if um, they pay him this summer, he's yeah. getting top three quarterback money. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're talking in the mid twenties, and that's um, that's a tough one. I, you know, they've kind of hitched their wagon to him, and he has shown the ability to be a franchise type quarterback. But he's also kind of had these moments where you say, wow, what is, you know, is this guy going to get any better? What is his ceiling? Is he really a fourth round pick that like, like he was. And, um, I think he will, I think he will end up getting his money. Uh, you know, when Jerry Jones says he's going to pay somebody, he generally does, you know, he, he kind of sticks to his word. So I think he's going to get that money. Um, and whether he's going to be worth that money is, is another thing, but I, I, I do think he's going to get paid. I think you can find guys like Dak Prescott. They're, it's not a generational guy. It's like the Andy Dalton types, the Kirk Cousins types. You can find those in the draft every year. Like they're not 
just this Andrew Luck freak of nature where you're set for 20 years. Those are the ones that it's just like, whatever, I'm paying. Russell Wilson, no problem. Absolutely do that. I don't think that fits in that category and i think there's nothing wrong with going back to the well and being like all right well we uh we exacerbated the the dak prescott era like we got a lot more out of a fourth round pick than most people get um in the quarterback market and somebody else can pay him we'll move on we'll find another yeah. dak prescott well you can do that but you know if you're going to be a good team this year and you're going to be drafting you know 25th next year <clears throat> i don't know even if in a deep quarterback draft and you know not not that deep once those quarterbacks start going off the board um then it's going to be tough so i you know that's why i think you know when you when you find a guy that you think you can build around you do keep him so i i, I do think they have that belief in dak and listen you know he he may be what you're talking about he may be that limited guy um and and you're eventually going to have to move on the cowboy i mean a lot of teams have had those kind of quarterbacks but um they seem to they seem to believe in him if I was the Cowboys, I would just trade for Stafford. You know that he, like the the Lions, probably kind of want to move on. That it's not a Matt Patricia guy. That he's he's been there for a long time. And if you don't want to go back into the well and draft another quarterback, that's fine. But like, I would love Stafford with Amari and that group and a good offensive line. And I, that's what I would like. Is that's what I would do. If you're going to pay a quarterback big money, pay the yeah, guy who's the, already making the last couple. Yeah, of years. but Detroit. I don't think Detroit. Look, they what's left? You know, they they don't want to go into a rebuilding. Um, I don't. They may not have a choice. They were the last place team in the NFC North last well, year. Well, I know, but I don't think they're <laughs> going to. I know, but that's the first year of of a new coach, yeah. and I, you go, you, you know, you tear that down now. I don't think I don't think Matt Patricia is going to make it beyond next year. So yeah. you know, you're basically asking a coach to commit career suicide by <laughs> by dealing that guy away, and you don't have a replacement right right on the roster now. I don't. I don't think. I don't think it's going to happen. But I don't either. You know, but that's stranger things have happened. But yeah. Um, another quarterback situation that I'm fascinated by that um, Bucky Brooks, um, the right hand man of Daniel Jeremiah with NFL Media, great podcast, Move the Sticks that I listen to every week. But um, he wrote about Josh Rosen and whether or not he could be the next Brett Favre. Favre had that disastrous rookie season in Atlanta, um, second round pick. He just, he, 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 the Packers sold. Um, they just did not have to give up a lot to get him. And he, he panned out, obviously. Like it was a, he, he got to a better situation that could do different things around him. And just, it worked, obviously. Um, but I, I thought it was still, I don't know. I don't get a Brett Favre type vibe because I think a lot of it with Rosen is we just, we know even less, I think, about Rosen than we knew about Favre at that point because, like, Rosen, man, you can't look at anything. He had a 43% pressure rate when he was dropping back last year. He was in one of the worst NFL offenses of all time. Like, the, uh, according to Offensive DVOA, it was a bottom 10 of all time. Like, it was disastrous. They were starting Justin Pugh, a guy you used to be familiar with in New York. Um, Andre Smith, a rookie center. Like, it was just bad. Christian Kirk got hurt. Larry Fitzgerald's a thousand years old. David Johnson may not be the same. But it was just a recipe for disaster. And the thing that I keep coming back to is that, like, the Dolphin situation's not great. Brett Favre went to a great organization that... Like, yeah, he went to the Packers and it was great. And, um, yeah, you got Reggie White and Jackson and Jones and all that after. But, like, he went from a bad organization to a stable, good one. Josh Rosen's going from a bad organization to another bad organization. Like, we've, what, what about the last, I mean, 
10 years of the Miami Dolphins with Ross and um, they have Tannenbaum in that front office still. And I just, I, that offensive line scares me. It's a first year head coach. It's a first time OC. There's all kinds of red flags. So I'm just not as optimistic about Rosen and Miami, I guess, as some people are. So when Bucky talks about that, I have to like kind of reassess um, how I look at this, but I, I don't know. I, I think it's a little more cloudy just because that situation's not great. And there's a real chance they're the worst team in the AFCs this year. Well, I, I think there's, you know, there is that possibility because I think the jets are improved. The bills uh, showed some improvement last year. The Patriots are who they are. Um, it's, and you know, the rookie coach, although I, you know, I, I like the coaching situation in Miami and I, I like, look, Rosen has much more of a chance in Miami than he did in Arizona. And even if they did not draft Kyler Murray, he, it's still a better situation for him. And I, I think it's 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 good that he kind of gets a second life. I don't see. I agree with you on that. I don't see another Brett Favre um, type renaissance here, because Favre was a guy who just had all this raw talent and was lost with Jerry Glanville in Atlanta. And you know Glanville didn't know how to handle him, and you know it was it was a train wreck down there. But when when he goes to you know Green Bay, he's got a great coach, got a great quarterback coach in Mike Holmgren, and Holmgren basically, you know, Favre was like a wild colt at that point in his career. And Holmgren, you know, you, you got to break a colt down and you and you got to build him up, and that's exactly what Holmgren did. I don't know that Rosen is that kind of guy. Rosen isn't. Rosen is not going to be broken down because he's he's a really confident guy. And he's not wired like like Favre was. Um, he's a bit of a risk taker and can sling it. Uh, Rosen's got a great arm and, and he really throws it very well. Um, again, I, it, you know, it's like pick your poison with that one. It's a better situation for him, but it's still not perfect. And I, I think he will struggle in that division. That offensive line's bad. And a guy yeah. who just got hit as much as he did last year, I, you were about the David Carr stuff yep. where yep. I, that dude's seen a lot already. <laughs> and yeah. I, I, he got really know. manhandled. He got thrown around like a rag doll last year. Um, so, uh, look, you know, he's he's happy about it, and he's not happy Kyler Murray got drafted. But, you know, he went out graciously and, you know, had a nice farewell to, to Arizona and thanked everybody. But, you know, it is time to move on. So I think it was a good move. But I think it was a good move for the Dolphins to do this because they've got a year to figure out whether the guy can get it done. Right. And that's very important in, in their development because, you know, they, they're obviously rebuilding. Um, Brian Flores, I think, is going to be a good coach in time, but it's going to take time. Mm-hmm. Um, so they got kind of a free year to, to look at this guy. He's cheap. They didn't have to pay that signing bonus. And if they're going to stink, then they're still going to be in, in, in a you know position to get, you know, Tua or, 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 yeah. or the quarterback from, um, you know, Oregon. And Herbert, yeah. I, you know, right, Herbert. So they're they're in a good spot, and and it's kind of no lose for the Dolphins. And you know, if and if Rosen takes the reins and goes with it and shows that he could be a big time quarterback, hey, more power to him. Yeah, I mean, it, it's going to be interesting, and I think that's a lot of pressure too. I mean, he's it, it's amazing. He went from one situation, and he's going to be looking over his shoulder again immediately. Yeah. Of like, yep, Miami, absolutely. They were going into the year with Ryan Fitzpatrick. Like, they were planning to tank. The tank for Tua stuff was real in Miami. Like, they were figured to be the team drafting number one overall next year. And he has to, he doesn't get the benefit of the doubt that these other young quarterbacks get, where it's like, once your team drafts you, you've got years to figure this stuff out. They want you to succeed. You don't have to look right. over your shoulder. 
but he's already on the clock. It's like he's yep. he's a 38-year-old veteran trying to make it work and like, no, I can still play. You can still bet on me. And it's, um, I don't know. I feel like he's already in the Carson Palmer zone <laughs> and it, <laughs> he's like 23 years old. It's It's wild. I don't envy his position is, I think, the broader point here because if he's bad, there's going to be a lot of tank for Tua stuff, a lot of Tua, like he's going to get booed. He's going to struggle with some stuff. Like I... It's a lot, but if he succeeds, it's one of my favorite stories of the year of like mm-hmm. the guy who gets kicked out uh, for Kyler Murray, the new flashy thing. Kingsbury comes in there and all this other stuff, and he has a better year than Kyler. Like that would be a great story. It'd be cool. I want them both to succeed. But if Rosen makes this all work and Brian Flores is a hit in year one and all that kind of stuff, I'm here for it. I, I love that kind of story. Sure. What's not to love about it? Yep. Um, one of the last things I want to talk about, and then we can get out of here and wrap up here, but, um, the XFL, it's, it's real. It's not like the AAF where people are just going to jail for life, um, from founding it. I mean, who knows? Vince McMahon, you never know, I guess at this point, Oliver Luck is in there. He seems pretty great. So I don't think we have to worry about that with him, but were you surprised at just how seemingly lucrative and enviable that uh, television deal is for them? Well, that television deal was huge, and when that was announced, I'm like, okay, now these guys have got it together. And the AAF, you know, they had CBS as a kind of a kind of a partner, but not not a completely willing partner. And that's you know a minefield there. You need TV exposure, and they had you know remember they had great ratings their first weekend, there was a lot of interest in it, and a lot of buzz, and then it just kind of went down. And then you know once it went belly up, it was just, you know, kind of a sad ending for a lot of good people. You know, there were a lot of good people in that league who felt that it was going to work and felt that it was at least going to get two years. So it goes by the wayside, but I think the model that the XFL has with Vince McMahon can be somewhat more sustainable. You know, they're in bigger markets and they've got the television deals and that's huge. And that really, that kind of, um, you know, sets the foundation uh, for at least a chance to succeed. And we've seen these leagues, they, really the Arena League is the only league that has kind of survived over a long period of time as, a, as another league. And it's, you know, it's different, it's indoors, and um, it's, it's just a different kind of sport. And it's survived over time. But these outdoor sports, they just cannot, outdoor football cannot make it unless you're the NFL. You know, we saw it with the USFL, that, that got destroyed after three years. We saw it with, um, you know, world the World Football League. We've seen it NFL Europe. It just it just can't sustain itself. And I don't I don't know that the XFL is is going to be here long term. But you know they did by themselves to me at least a year, if not two years, and perhaps three with those television deals. And if they can kind of just keep it going, get some momentum early, um, it, it'll at least have a chance. Yeah. And I think ultimately you just can't look at it as like, I mean, I think the biggest thing to keeping the XFL around for the foreseeable future is uh, a willingness from the NFL to help them out or not try and put them out and not kind of like the AAF. We know how that kind of. Yeah, but the NFL, the NFL tried, they they tried to help that, you know, they, they were, they were kind of willing to, to let that be a minor league. And I think they will with the, with the XFL, I don't think the NFL will look at the XFL as competition like like the USFL was was a that was an existential kind of threat. The USFL was going after the NFL. Period. They wanted to really merge with the NFL, and, and the NFL wasn't having it. 
But the XFL, I think, is, you know, they're, look, we're a minor league operation. We're, you know, we're not going to get stars, and, and stars are not going to sign with us. And, and I think the NFL is fine with that in this respect. A lot of their lower-tier roster players don't get a lot of time and a lot of playing experience. So this gives them a chance, and it could give them a chance, you know, to get some experience, and you have a feeder system. I mean, you got a feeder system with college football as it is. It's the ultimate free feeder system for the NFL. It's great. It's like free money for the NFL. They get these guys and free advertising. Right? All these it's guys totally. we all know. Like, you yeah. know Kyler Murray, and he's going to sell sure. merch because he was on TV all the time, and more people saw it. That's the reason the NFL loves college football. It's just it's free advertising, and these guys well, are already ready-made stars, and they come Well, that's it. That's the, it's it. They're ready-made stars. That's it. I mean, it's tra- they train them. The colleges train them. They play them. They get them ready, and they are ready-made players by the time they get to the NFL. And the NFL doesn't have to spend a penny in developing them. But once the players get to this level and they and they're in their twenties, um, they they need they need practice and they need practice in games and that's where the XFL can benefit them and that's where the AAF was going to benefit them. Now, you know, a number of AAF players did you know sign with NFL teams, and partly because they at least got some experience, they put some 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 plays on tape, and you know convinced people to at least give them a shot. So, you know. Again, I don't think the NFL is looking at the XFL as a threat at all. They know it's not. They don't, there's no league that can compete with the NFL on what the NFL tries to do. It's just not going to happen. And, you know, the XFL's best bet is to know that they're going to be a niche sport with a good television contract and, you know, have some fun. No more he hate me, but, um, you know, you'll have a, you'll have a number of character players in there, I'm sure. Yeah, um, it's just going to feel weird because I feel like this is going to be nice. It's just the wrong name because XFL just makes us all think of something else. And I don't think that's what this league going to yeah. be at all. Um, yeah. Didn't they have some other weird rules where like they, how did they have their kickoff and like recovering from, like, didn't they like dive at the ball or something? Wasn't that? In the XFL? Um, in the old XFL? Yeah. I don't remember that. I don't remember. They had something weird like that. I, I don't know. There were a lot of weird rules that I want to kind of go back and revisit now just. Yeah. <laughs> uh, jog my memory on the Tommy Maddox era of the yeah. Los Angeles. What were they, yeah. the Galaxy or something? Extreme? Um, I, don't know. I don't remember. Um, yeah, not sure. I, I don't know. It was um, a long time ago, man. It really was. Um, but I remember watching it on uh, basic cable back in the day. I remember <laughs> staying yeah. up late to watch the XFL. Uh, that was a thing. <laughs> uh, all right, Bob. Well, we need to wrap up here. Um, but you have a book that I believe I'm getting a signed copy, not to put you on the spot. Here, oh yeah, that's all right. I'm, I'm I'm good for it. Yep. Okay. Um. What 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 is the biggest reason fans should check out uh, your book and um what, uh, what any kind of excerpts or anything about it that was like man this this is just if you're a big football fan or you're a big Giants fan whatever you have to read this book. Well, look, it's called Guts and Genius, and it's a story of the three unlikely coaches who came to dominate the NFL and really change it. And those three coaches, of course, are Bill Parcells, Bill Walsh, and Joe Gibbs. Now, Gibbs won three championships, maybe the greatest tactician of all time, great great game day strategist, tremendous. And now the influence that Parcells and Walsh have had on the game continue today to the point where every coach in today's NFL has some connection, either direct or indirect, to Bill Walsh or Bill Parcells. It's incredible. You can draw a line and find connections with those two coaches and they really they really changed the sport and the and the way we watch the sport. 
the 80s. I know you weren't around then um, to watch it, not. but it was <laughs> it was some of the best football ever. You know, there was no free agency, right? Your team stayed together. So if you were good, you stayed good. And the, 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 the way the NFL developed over time, it kind of matured in the 80s to this great competitive time when you had rivalries that were second to none. You have rivalries from year to year now, but these were like blood rivalries. You know, the Giants, Redskins, Giants, Cowboys, Giants, 49ers. It was like they would go, they would crush each other back and forth. And it was, it was kind of like no time in the NFL. And I kind of go back and kind of paint the picture of what that was like, what they went, what the coaches struggled to, to kind of get through um, before they got to the mountaintop. And they all were nearly fired very early in their careers. But they hung in, they persevered, and they, and they really did change the way uh, football was played to, to this day. All right. Well, go check it out. I'm going to read it soon. I'm excited about it. it uh, it's going to be great. Bob, thank you so much uh, for taking the time tonight. I really appreciate it. Really enjoyed it. And thanks for, for giving me the opportunity. All right. We'll have to do this again soon. Sounds great. All right. Thanks, Bob. Okay. Thank you. And that'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. I just want to remind you guys, if you like today's episode and you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, I would really appreciate if you could take a second, leave the show a five-star rating and a review. If uh, you're not an Apple Podcast listener, remember you can find the show on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, Be sure to check out ChaseThomasPodcast.com where you can access all of my previous episodes and also find all my writing. I'm writing there fairly often. And also follow me on Twitter at Chase underscore Thomas and like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. Uh, thank you for your support and we'll be back with another episode very soon. Thanks guys. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.